Welcome to Music Lessons, the podcast where we explore the analogous principles of music and growth by interviewing top musicians. I'm your host, Andy Likens. My background is in music and scaling a music team at a fast-paced tech company. As someone who loves to learn and grow, I'm fascinated by the mental frameworks and approaches of musicians and how they can apply to our lives beyond just music. Whether you're a curious music lover or a lifelong learner, this podcast is for you. Neil Coomer is a singer, songwriter, and writer who began his career in Nashville as a recording artist. You've definitely heard Neil sing. He has shared the stage as a background singer with artists such as Cyndi Lauper, Dolly Parton, Sting, Elton John, James Taylor, Bruce Springsteen, Mavis Staples, Annie Lennox, Boy George and the Culture Club, Leanne Rimes, and Jane Krakowski. He's broken out in an impromptu sing-along with Mrs. Brady and Wonder Woman and has sung regularly on SNL and for 30 Rock and on jingles for brands like Skippy, Taco Bell, and Gillette. Neil also co-wrote a rock concerto that played in Turkey, Mexico, and Carnegie Hall, and has been a guest soloist with the Nashville Ballet. Please enjoy my conversation with Neil Coomer. A quick note, after we stopped recording the main part of our conversation, Neil and I continued to chat and decided it might be best to record that as well. So please enjoy a few more bonus minutes with Neil Coomer. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Neil Coomer. Just a reminder, you can find links and notes to all the things we talked about in this episode on the show notes page. Also, you can find Neil on Instagram at Neil Coomer, N-E-A-L-C-O-O-M-E-R. And if you enjoyed the podcast, I hope you'll rate and subscribe. Thank you so much. Neil Coomer, welcome to the show. Thank you. How's it going? Wow. <laughs> it's going so well. I'm so glad yeah. you could be here and thank you for agreeing to do this slightly under the influence. So I'm uh, so glad that I caught you at a vulnerable moment. Wait a minute. Me under the influence? You under the influence? Well, probably both. <laughs> <laughs> I did make a spritz in your honor, just so you know, because I was, I knew I was going to be on with you. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm making a spritz. I'm just Mr. Italiano. I appreciate it. Because there's two reasons. One, because obviously you're, you and your Italian homes and two, because the last time we saw each other was in Italy. So yeah, so, so perfect. Hopefully that'll be the next time we see each other too. I know. But soon, but anyway. Well, hopefully I can come and see what you guys are doing, what you guys have done there. Yeah. Okay. So I have a, I have a first question for you, a first topic for you. Okay. Which is, can you tell me a little bit about getting your hair dyed pink in Australia? <laughs> yes, actually, I did have my hair dyed pink in Australia and I never thought as a middle-aged man, a person, you know, in my fifties <laughs> that I would have my first go around with pink hair, but yes, I got my hair colored, you know, I was on tour in March, some of March and April with Cindy Lauper and halfway through the tour, what it was a five week tour. I was like, ah, I really need to get my hair colored. So the person who was a tour liaison, she was like, oh, I'll set up an appointment for you at my salon. And cause I've been dying at platinum for a while. And so I go in and the thing about getting platinum hair, especially if someone you've never been to before is getting the toner right. Because I found out during the pandemic that on the sides, I found out what my true hair color was because I had not seen my <laughs> real hair color in quite some time. So it wasn't what I remembered it being. It was a lot more salt and pepper and on the sides, much more salt. 
So with platinum hair, I'm like, oh, I had platinum hair when I was like, and when I was in my 20s. And so I'm like, oh yeah, why not? I'll do it again. But then, you know, then you, you have, after you have a few people say, oh, look at you. I'm glad you let your hair grow out and you're growing natural. And I'm like, damn it. You know, because it, the more white it looks, the more it looks like, you know, hey, old guy. So the toner then becomes important. And this person at the salon, you know, she didn't leave the toner on very long. I get back to the hotel. The first person I see at the bar is Cindy, her manager, and Elaine, who I sing with, <laughs> Elaine Caswell, who you know. And Cindy's like, yeah, she said to me like, is that the way you wanted them to color your hair? And I was, <laughs> I was like, uh, well, no, not really. And I go into the whole toner thing, you know, blabbing. And you know, she's like, well, come up to the room if you want, and we'll put some pink in it. And I was like, <laughs> sure, why not? And why the hell not? You know, why not have pink hair? I'm on freaking tour with Cindy Lauper. And if she's going to color my hair... So, and there was a moment, I'll be honest with you, you know, that was a little bit bizarre in the sense that here I am, I had a black t-shirt on. She was like, you have to take your t-shirt off. And I was like, oh, my man boobs. And so I had like a towel around my neck, you know, and then she went off to do something. And I'm like, okay, this is really weird. I'm sitting in Cindy Lauper's room by myself with her. She's just put pink in my hair. I'm waiting as, a, as I'm processing. And then I, you know, flash back to me as a kid, you know, watching MTV with my elbows on my shag carpet, you know, watching her videos and like, okay, yeah, that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. And you've, you've worked with her for a long time, right? Yeah. On and off for maybe 10 ish years. Wow. Okay. You know, Elaine has toured with her, Elaine, you know, sing with, Elaine has toured with her for maybe 12 years, but I've never done any of the tours. Oh, I see. I've always like done like one-offs, stuff in the city or Christmas show, and then studio a few times. And the first thing I ever did was in the studio with her for singing the demos for Charlie, one of the leads in Kinky Boots. Oh, I see. So they had gone through a couple singers and, you know, it wasn't really working. And then Elaine was like, Hey, you should try Neil. Neil can do this. And so it was one of the most gruesome sessions I've ever had in my life. Why was it gruesome? What makes it gruesome? Because she gave as as a very Cindy way to do this, but you know, she was like, you know, I want it to sound a little bit like, you know, Morrissey sings, you know, so and so and Elvis Costello singing so and so. And so she gave these different, you know, things. So I'm like, so I go in trying to morph my voice to sound like mm. this weird amalgamation of Elvis Costello and Morrissey. And after, you know, she's like, you know, she's like, no, no, no. She's like, you're, you're too tense. You're, you're next too tense, whatever, you know? And she was like, jog in place. And I was like, what? <laughs> she was like, jog in place. And I was like, uh, okay. And I started jogging in place. And she was like, that's not jogging. Get your knees up. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God. And so I just had this whole like moment of Neil, put your ego aside. This woman has been doing this for a long time. She's phenomenal. She's amazing. She's the most, one of the most incredible singers in the world. You may learn something. So here I was jogging in place and she was like, now sing the first line. And I stopped and I started singing the first line and she was like, no, why are you jogging? And so I was literally <laughs> jogging in place behind the microphone, singing the first line of the, you know, so she pulled out all the tricks in the book through the whole session, you know, do this, blow up balloons, all the things that she's ever learned in a you know, voice lesson. Wow. And 
finally, after a while, I went outside, sat down, we took a break and I told Elaine, I was like, Elaine is not working. I mean, like she needs a guy who sounds like her and I get it. You know, this is, these, this is what she has in her head. And she was like, just go in there and sing it the way you would have sang it when you walked in the door, mm. you know, just get everything out of your head and go in. You know. And finally, to her credit, Cindy left me alone at one point with just the engineer. And I'm like, can we start over? Mm. So I just started singing it the way I would have sang it when I walked in the door five hours earlier. <laughs> and at the end of the night, actually, when we just were doing playback, you know, we were just after, after we played everything, it's probably midnight, you know, she looked up from on the floor and she was like, you kicked ass and you took no motherfucking prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's worth it. That's great feedback. That made it all worth it. So that was my the beginning of my relationship with Cindy. So that's amazing. What was the so um I'm curious, did you have a learning coming out of that after all, whether it was from Cindy or otherwise, you know, going no. back in and <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, look, I've luckily you know, I spent a lot of time in studios for the last 30 years. And it's not that I'm saying, you know, look, I think you need to be open in every single situation because you never know what what might come out of it, you know. If you go in closed off and like, I've got this, you know, I'm the best, I'm good at this, whatever, that doesn't serve you, the song, the producer, the writers, the artist, whatever it is, you know, your ego doesn't really serve anybody. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a lifelong learner, so I want to always pick up things along the way. So to say that I didn't learn anything, well, it's not that I went, I took those things and just kind of like kept them. But, you know, there were techniques that she's learned in voice lessons yeah. that of course apply. I mean, I don't walk around with a balloon in my bag, but you know, and all those principles I definitely understood. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So where did you get started then? Can you go all the way back to the beginning and like, how did you, because you're not from New York, right? So no. how did you wind up in New York as a professional singer? I grew up in church. My grandfather was a pastor. My other grand, you know, both of my grandfathers were pastors. My uncles were pastors. My dad when was an evangelist when I was born. Wow. So like church is like, so the one thing about that is you're singing, you know, I mean, I sing. So, you know, you're singing from the get go. You're singing in church and you're singing in, you know, singing in school. I went to a performing arts high school, majored in musical theater. Uh, I went to college and sang a lot, you know, but. I was a music major in college for only a year. And then I was like, okay, this is, I don't like this. Hmm. I'm dropping the major. I'm not going to make a living in music. There's no money in music. And <laughs> I switched my major. And I was like, oh, wish I had known. I would have stayed with it. But wait, what did you switch your major to? Communications. And okay. There's, you know, equally no money in communications either. So like, <laughs> I don't know what the hell I was thinking. But I met it through one of the music stuff. I met a friend of mine. I met a guy that, he was a songwriter and he wanted to do, you know, he wanted me to sing on his demos. And then he was like, we should form a group. And the guy that we were singing with, his group is really what great, amazing, high, 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 high level of musicianship. Um, this guy named Danny Murray. And I attribute him to the way, the reason I sing the way I sing hmm. today. Because when he first heard me sing, he was like, oh, he's like, man, he said, you have a beautiful voice. He said, but I just wish you, I don't really care. He's like, I just wish you would move me, you know, like that you would, you know. So under him, I kind of learned the value of doesn't matter what you sing like. It Can you take somebody from one place to another? Oh, interesting. Can you move somebody with a song? 
you know, and it's really subconsciously at that time, for me, my philosophy of singing came out of that time. And it is, my hope is that my soul travels on a note, you know, that it has some kind of force, that it has some kind of impact. So the guy that I met singing with during that time, he was like, let's do a, let's do a group. Let's da, da, da. So keep in mind, I just told you my background, church, 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 right? All that stuff. And we got signed to a Christian record deal, me and this guy. A la, you know, in most people's reference, you know, Amy Grant, you know, like that, that, you know. Okay. So that kind of came pretty quickly after college, maybe like a year. We did a demo, we did demos. And so we toured like for like four or five years. We, wow. we made, you know, we had two records. We were signed to a five record deal. You know, we had like a handful of top 10 singles and like four number ones. And in that world, you know, it's a different world, but yeah, that's great though. You were successful, yeah. Well, we did 300 tour dates in the first year. Wow. So it's like paying your dues, cutting your teeth, you know, that kind of thing. And then a lot the next year, you know, so. And toward the end of that time uh, that we were in the group together, I it was called East to West. And and I kind of had my eye on the exit door because I had yet to come out. And I was, I could, the waters were bubbling. I could feel that I can't, you know. This is going to have to happen. I'm going to have to transition into not trans, but, <laughs> but, you know, I can't live this way. Right. But at the same time, situation happened with him, which he's written about. And the label was like, okay, you need to tour right now, but we're not going to make another record with the two of you the way things are. So they kind of wanted to transition me into finishing out the rest of that contract as a solo artist. Oh, yeah. And the, the president of the label at one point said, look, you know, I've got an idea. Why don't we do an interview with like this top industry magazine and you can say how you have overcome homosexuality. Mm. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, no, I'm like, and, you know, shortly after that, my A&R guy was like, hey, he's about to resign. Do you want out? Do you want out? Now's the time to take it. And so I marched into his office. I was like, you know, I'd like to be released. And luckily he did. You know, the guy released me from the contract. And then, you know, maybe, you know, a, a few years after that, I made made the move to New York. Wow. Now, all of that is time for like a spritz break. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm also curious to hear because if, so you first met your, I don't know what you call it, your bandmate, your co-artist. Yeah. <laughs> What would it say? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. You first met him and sort of had this revelation about injecting your soul into something. Meanwhile, you're sort of touring like crazy. So you, I guess you have the opportunity to inject your soul or however you want to think about it or talk about it, layered on with this, this extra, I don't know how to describe it, but this extra sort of maybe tension between what the label wants you to do and how you're feeling. And so was all that happening together where you kind of working through your approach to your singing while all this is going on? Or did you feel like you got there pretty quickly somehow? Or Well, it's a little bit of a three, like each having its own separate entity. The person I felt like I really kind of learned the most from as far as like singing and who I became as a singer, he was kind of a mentor, a professor, but had a group, right? Oh, I see. In college. In that group, I met the guy who became my partner. I see. My partner, my other, my, you know, that we had this duet 
And yes, during that time was the height of tension because I was coming of age. I was coming, you know, to grips yeah, with my right. sexuality. But yet everything I was told and had learned my entire life was that it was wrong. You were going to hell. This was a huge mistake. So you get into it. Not only did I have that bullshit of this is leading you straight you know, to hell. Now I had a career on top of it that was in complete opposition to that philosophically, you know, theologically, whatever. So, but my career now was tied into it. So other people who, you know, my living other people, you know, and my partner, that was the way he was, you know, kind of, you know, making a living. So if I came out, then it would ruin everything for everybody because that's a non-negotiable in that world. Right. So, like I said, then we got to, toward the end of that time. And yeah, I think that's right. That's a great point, Andy, because like the friction, you know, anytime artistically you have friction, you know, has the potential to birth your voice, mm. not only the way your singing voice, but how you approach lyrics and how you, what you want to say, what is your purpose and all those kinds of things. And how do you want to communicate it? And, you know, you learn to almost subvert. I think that maybe a better lyricist was like, you almost learn to like say something without saying it. Oh, interesting. Which to me gives a richer texture of the context of lyrics. You know, you're really, really searching for a way to say something interesting because if you just say it right out outright, it, you know, one, you can't. Two, when you realize once the tension is gone, it's just kind of trite, more trite, right? Yeah. You can write better. And the only like little end cap to that story with the, it's, it's interesting because even though it was me and had nothing to do with me, my friend who I had the group with, and we're still very close to this day. And we were roommates at one point and, you know, in college, right at the end of college. And he went on after that. He was like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, you love country music. That's been in your blood. You're in Nashville. Right. Produce. Now's your chance to do that. Right. And so he went on and like, there was an artist called Shelly Wright. And he was played bass in her band and makes a few other things. And his cousin was a really good singer. They started playing in a bar in Nashville and then started a group. And they like, they got signed. It's up at Rascal Flats is the, his oh. His group. Amazing. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like he had a, you know, and just had like the most incredible run for 20 years. They did. Wow. You know, they just disbanded the group not too long ago, but. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. But again, I was like country music. You know, I was like, it didn't make sense for me. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I have to imagine the conversation with the label head was a tough one or difficult one. And as a young person, I mean, I think about myself as a young person, I didn't really have, I sort of considered myself quite naive when I was young, where I just kind of believe whatever anybody told me or do whatever they said. So I guess you have this, I don't know how to describe it. You have this friction going on that we're talking about. How do you approach that conversation? Because you said you were really worried about the career of your of your bandmates and stuff like that. I mean, was it something that just came naturally to you because it's who you are? Or how did you work through that? I and mean, that must have been really challenging. It was awful. It was one of the most intense year. It took about a year and a half. Wow. To dissolve everything. Plus, I was in a relationship with a girl at the time. Wow. And I loved her. I really did. And we're still in touch to this day as well. Luckily, it was a very, very difficult situation and scenario. So I had to dissolve a lot, right? 
And like I said, it took a lot of time to say, okay, hey, can I do this? Can I continue on with this front or can I, because I was, I wasn't out in high school, but you know, I, my, you know, I went to performing arts high school. Okay. So I had like secret boyfriends in high school. Right. And then I went to a Christian college. So I went back in the closet and then out of that came this record deal and, you know, living this life where you had to suppress your sexuality but to leave the record deal, to break up the relationship, you know, yeah, I was, it actually made me like physically affected, you know, like physically, like, cause I was, the stress level was so high and it was just an awful, awful, awful period, you know? And of course, once I finally did that and lifted that, you know, you kind of, then it's like any kid, you know, who was maybe potentially there at that same place or going through that. It's like mm. everything in the world you want to do to like, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it don't lock yourself into like either a belief that this is wrong or that you're wrong or there's something wrong with you or you're twisted or you're going to hell. That's, that's, you know, complete bullshit. And you just want to like, if you can save and save a kid, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't waste the time because you get, you look back on it and it's only looking back on something that you can assess or analyze time. Right. Oh, so true. Yeah. You know, and say, ah, oh, if I'd only done this in my 20s or if I'd only done this or if I'd only, you know, then, of course, you always revert to, wow, OK, any left hand or right hand turn would have led me to a completely different path. You know, I would have never then met my husband if I had gone to school for musical theater, you know, accepted the scholarship for that. You know, if I if I had done that, then who knows what path. Was there something that you leaned on or turned to to help you through like to help you, I don't know, process at the time or and this is a while ago. I I can stop focusing on this too if you want me to. But I'm just curious to know. No, I mean it's you know it is the. I think you know. Look, you always kind of look for the common thread in people and humankind and what we share, right? And the ten, struggle, tension, crossroads, you know, psychological hell. <laughs> you know, these are all things that we all have dealt with at some point in some place in these huge transitional moments in our lives. And yeah, I had a friend who was an artist who was very successful, who was in that world, but who was closeted. And we were able to talk about it and it really helped kind of break that up. He gave me a book that really helped me, you know, kind of look at it a little bit differently. My A&R guy who I, you know, also another friend he kind of really, really made a huge difference because, you know, these huge long talks that we would have. And he was the first person to present to me, you know, mm, okay, well, what if this is not wrong? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he believed it, but he was, you know, in a very great way. He was, you know, he's, he's an involved human being and a very good friend. But, you know, he was like, what if this is not wrong? And it was the first like kind of eye opening moment of, oh, wow, what if it isn't, you know, what if everything that I'm feeling, everything is okay. And everything that I'm feeling is faulty wiring slash program, not faulty wiring, but uh, faulty programming. Faulty programming. Right. Right. Wow. Fascinating. Awesome. Good, good friend. Yeah. Okay. So when do you wind up in New York or how do you get there? And then what was the first time when you felt like, oh, I'm like doing this professional musician thing. Because you had mentioned 
you switched out of majoring in musical theater because you're like, yeah, this is not going to do me any good. Right. Which, by the way, I often wish I'd had that same thought about trombone playing, but I didn't. I kept doing it. <laughs> so I'm curious, like when that flip switched back and you were like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. Well, it was after college because that's when, you know, we got the record, you know, signed to a record deal. So then I was like making a living as a musician, as a performer, as an artist, singer. And then coming out of that, I just kind of thought, oh, I got a record deal the first time really easily. Now I'll just kind of move into the pop world and, you know, transition into that. Oh, I see. Those doors, for whatever reason, did not open. You know, it does go to show, I think, the breaks in the music industry. Uh, you know, I was singing at a Grammy Foundation gig, you know, kind of multi-artist thing in L.A. several years back. I mean, like maybe 10 years ago, something like that. And Willie Nelson was on the show and, you know, don't really remember who I was on it, but there was a video. And in this video, uh, they were talking about raising awareness and money for the Grammy Foundation and what the Grammy Foundation does. Sting was on the video and he was talking about the Grammy Foundation, how important it is helping musicians who need help, you know, whether it's their lost their house in a tornado or floods in New Orleans, a Katrina you know, the, to replace instruments, replace studio, you know, the, all the stuff. I see. And I wish I had the exact words of what he said, but I can just kind of summarize it, fumbling through it. But it was something like, the only thing that separates me from the musicians that I'm here to support is I had a little luck along the way. I had a lucky break. I had luck. And I am you. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, I am you, but, but had it not been for a, a lucky break, or two, I would be on the other side of this screen. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Because again, not comparing apples and oranges because the industry that I was in is so completely different. But when you realize that those doors don't open for one reason or another, and then you kind of transition into being a working musician, it's, you know, it's a different way and a different approach to life. And, you know, you don't really call the shots the way maybe you did before or, you know, and I'm fine with that because it's, it's just, you know, I'm still doing something that I love to do. But yeah, I think it is doors open or they don't open because I can tell you the majority of my colleagues have all had record deals. You know, some had hits on the radio. They decided they didn't want to do it anymore. They didn't want to do it like that. They had record deals that fell through, that, you know, the single didn't happen, that they, you know, the majority of them, they've been through that system and they've been through it, you know, so just because you have a record deal doesn't mean that, you know, your career is going to take off. Yeah. And I also think that the luck thing is really true. I mean, even if you just look at uh, like the statistical probability of making it big as a musical artist, it's just like anything else where it's like, you really have to, you really have to have a lot of good fortune. Yeah. Because it's not only talent. That's right. I mean, I sometimes get to stand by some of the best singers in the world and they're phenomenal when they do like solo stuff, you, you know, you're just kind of blown away because they're that good. They're that great, you know? And so when you measure that, when you put them measured up to like some other artists and like, Oh, they're just as good as so-and-so or they're just, you know, so whether or not it just was not the right song or the right relationship uh, with the right producer or the right writers or the right, you know, manager or right. A and R people, whatever, so many different factors. But, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not phenomenal. Yeah. 
So what's the dynamic like between a given artist and maybe it changes depending on the artist? Like if you are, you know, sort of one of the hired guns, either on their tour or on their studio session or whatever, because I would imagine that like what you just described, you just have a ton of respect for all of your co-musicians there. I'm curious, do you sense that also from the artist where perhaps that power dynamic is a little bit different just because they are in a different position, whether or not it's, you know, because they were lucky or... You know, to be honest with you, some do, some don't. There's a a real advantage to being at this place, point, age, you know, whatever in my life or my career, but, you know, because I didn't move to New York until I I think it was, uh, it was 20 years ago. And... I'd spent my 20s doing that other deal and coming out of that and then trying to kind of steal the waters of my personal life as well. So by the time the the move to New York happened, I was a little older. So now, kind of then and now, the advantage and disadvantage. One, I'm aging out of a lot of things like, oh, I know that I'm not going to get a call to do something with Ariana Grande on Fallon because I'm too old. I look too old. They're going to have some 20-something-year-old singer who's singing with her. Totally makes sense. Or any new artist or anybody of that equal age, right? But yeah, I'll get the call for Christopher Cross or Michael McDonald or, <laughs> you know. But the good thing about that, and, that's what, and this is kind of the point I'm trying to make, is I'm catching artists in a lot of the configurations that I'm working with them, they've already had their peak. I see. So they now approach life from the other side. And I'm not going to say the other side of fame, the other side of the hysteria of fame. Mm. Right. So there's still some of them icons and legends and, you know, but you look at life through a different lens once you're older And once you've been through, you know, and still, you know, they have, you know, people want a piece of them. Everybody wants to take their picture. They, you know, have a hard time going to a restaurant, all that kind of stuff. But when you're in the rehearsal room, a lot of the bullshit is gone. The psychological bullshit. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Especially when there are events or, you know, benefits. People are there to kind of, they're to enjoy each other's company, to put on a great show. And yeah, you usually find that there's a lot of respect for everyone in the room, you know, the band, the singers, yeah, you know, the artists. Everyone but the trombone players, basically. Everyone but the trombone (laughs) player. There's a couple of really good ones, and they seem to do very well. Oh yeah, no, they're they're they're. (laughs) Not saying you're not a great one. The joke because I'm really not. Um, but uh, I like to make jokes about it. It Makes me feel better about myself. I I love that. That's your your bone man. Okay. So I'm curious to hear about your time with Fanny Lennox. You know, I've done some extra digging on the side and I know that this is an interesting one. So I'm curious to hear you talk about this now that we have a bit of a foundation about where you came from, sort of where you're at now, how you approach this stuff. I'm curious to hear how that one is similar, different, or... I mean, look, people, uh, you know, will ask me sometimes, like, who is your favorite artist to sing with? Or who are the people, you know, da, da, da. The thing with Annie Lennox was only like a few days for the Rainforest benefit, which is Sting and Trudy Styler, his wife, that they have done for a long time, but they usually do it like every other year. The last one we did was in 2019 before the pandemic. 
and Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart were, they were, the Eurythmics were coming back together for like the first time in like 15 years, maybe. Wow. Which was, you know, a little bit of pee my pants moment to get to sing with her, you know, and it's multiple singers and a, like crazy, crazy house band, multiple singers, you know, so I don't want to overstate it. Like as far as like, oh, um, yeah, I've known Annie forever. No, that's not true at all. But to get to sing those songs with her, to watch her perform, to hear, you know, and she was the kindest, nicest human being. And so like open, like serious, like heart open, like that kind of, you know, here's my, I have a big light coming out of my chest and whatever. So a technical issue was going on. We're standing off to the side of the stage during rehearsal, standing there for a minute. And I told her, I was like, okay, I'm going to fanboy out on you for like maybe two minutes. So I'm not sure if that's weird or if you can handle that, you know? And she was like, <laughs> she started laughing and she was like, no, no, go ahead. I said, okay, here we go. One of my favorite performances, live performances of all time, for sure. My, I, I mean, I feel like it's one of my very favorite, if not my favorite live performance is her and David Bowie singing Under Pressure at Wembley Stadium for the Freddie Mercury tribute concert just after Freddie had died. I haven't seen this, so I'll have to look it up on YouTube. Oh my God, I'm so happy for you because now you get to go watch this. <laughs> get to see it for the first time, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I expect a text of your gratitude. It is one of the most phenomenal performances ever because the crowd is going crazy, right? It's beautiful, it's at night. Annie comes out in, I know you'll, you maybe you remember this, she had this, she did like these black, almost raccoon eyes, her makeup. It's like black raccoon eyes. And she had this big, huge, like toile, like dress. The bottom half of her dress was like, you know, huge, black and a, you know, bodice at the top, black. She looked unbelievable. Her hair was like super short, I think platinum. And David Boy was in a suit. The performance is absolutely incredible. Toward the end of the performance, like, you know, they're like really getting into it. And the song is so emotional. And she's like up in his face, like all up. And I was like, is she going to kiss him? Uh, you know, she was like, and she was so invading his space. I mean, obviously they're friends, but, you know, I was like, that is really weird. I don't know if she's going to kiss him. It's like so strange. Anyway, she doesn't kiss him. And at the performance, you know, people are going crazy. It's like, so I told her this. I was like, that was, you know, and she said, that was one of the days in my life where everything just came together in the right way, at the right space, at the right time. And I was like, really? You know, and it was like, I love that she shared that with me, right? And then she went on, you know, she was like, she said, yeah, she said that whole day, you know, there's a, those events are, it's like a bunch of male, you know, machismo, you know, there's, a, I didn't want to be around that energy. I just didn't want to be around it. I stayed in my dressing room, locked myself in my dressing room the whole day. And she said, you know, even like my eyes, I was thinking, what can I do? But she said, my whole thought was funereal, funereal. I just wanted to be funereal. And I was like, so you came up with the, you know, I think I asked her if she came up with the concept of her eyes and she said, yes. And she was like, in my outfit, I wanted my outfit to be funereal because, you know, Freddie had just died. She said, so my intention was I was singing Freddie's part in Under Pressure and coming to David, I represented death and I was coming for him. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I was like, did you tell him ahead of time? Did you let him know? And she said, no. And I was like, you didn't tell him that you were going to just come on stage and 
fucking act like death and like get all up in his business. And, you know, like she was like, no, because I knew he could handle it. She said, but that was my intention that I was death. I was Freddie, but I was death for under pressure of all songs. And I was like, I mean, I felt it's like one of those things where I was like, just standing there, just with my mouth wide open, you know, I'm like, first of all, like, I can't believe you're telling me all of this, you know, it's like my own little personal behind the music, you know? <laughs> and on top of it, I just felt like such a connection with her. And I just like, like such a huge, huge heart. And then when she started singing, she like kicked ass and it was amazing. Incredible. My God, just to sing those songs, you know, what I lied to you and yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was a very, very special thing. Do you have a day where you feel like everything came together? Like, was there something about her answering the question in that way where you were like, I totally get that as a musician, I totally get that. That's a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, when something challenges you of like a vocal performance, you're worried about it. Just like, you know, can I pull this off? Can I, you know, when I say that, I mean, like if it's, you know, something that really stretches you vocally, not having anything to do with it being in front of a specific crowd or anything like that, because that doesn't affect me. But just like, oh, do I have the stamina? Can I sing these notes or whatever? So when you're performing a lot of times and you kind of let go of, I mean, sometimes you're you're bound by your instrument and what you're capable of and your limitations is really what I should probably say. And then there are other times when it's almost kind of like, you know, something else takes over and you just give into it, even in its imperfection. And just, I mean, one of the like best compliments somebody paid me one time was at a party. It was actually in Italy. And it was a very innocent compliment that she gave me. She was like, she's like, yeah. She said, I always wait for that moment where you get possessed. And she said, and I know exactly when it happens. And when it happens, she's like, that's when she was like, there it is. And I was like, wow. Yeah. When you just kind of get, you get out of your way, you, you know, you get out of the way and, you know, you just like, just let it go. So you let it go somewhere else. How do you get there? To me, it's that thing I said earlier about my intention, about my soul traveling on a note. Mm. And when that early, from that person who was my, you know, mentor, professor slash friend, you know, it's like, I don't care how you sing. I care how you make me feel. So to me, it, you know, my intention more is to make someone feel something. And if I can deliver something passionately, you know, I remember like there was a performance, Mary J. Blige singing No More Drama on the Grammys in like 1999 or 2000 or 2001, whatever. And it was freaking blood and guts, man. What do you mean blood and guts? What do you mean? I mean, she was just giving it, giving it all, giving her everything. Oh, I see. You know, it was just like, <laughs> got it. You know, when Patti LaBelle like kicks off her shoes or, you know, when Aretha Franklin, got, you know, threw off her big mink coat, you know, her big fur coat singing, you know, for Carol King at the Kennedy Center Honors, which I was very happy and lucky to be there for that performance. I didn't sing with Aretha, but. <laughs> Yeah, when somebody just like they kind of give over to it, you know, those are great, you know, the great performances where it's just like they're just giving you everything they've got, you know, and laying it, leaving it all on the floor. You know, it's like, I don't know. I think that get, I don't, is there a way to get there? I don't know. I think it's all about what your intention is. I mean, it sounds a little bit too like your your first story with your first gig with Cindy, where you 
sort of set your ego aside and there you are jogging in place or doing whatever ridiculous thing, right? Totally. Just because, you know, you're trying to be open to to what's going on. Yeah, your ego, like, but you're, you know, yeah, being open to what's going on. I mean, and that's like, geez, one of the things I hope as an artist, as a creator, and all like artists and creators is that we go through life that way, you know, it's like to be open and to experience and to feel. I mean, it sucks being open and feeling in the world because you feel pain, you feel people's pain, you know, you feel suffering and you see people's suffering. And sometimes, you know, there's nothing worse than being misinterpreted when you kind of like they think that you need somebody considers you something that you're not, you're just the empathy. Sometimes you just don't want to feel it. You know, it's like, you're a very, but that's part of the creative process, I think. And being a creative, open person is, you know, those people are usually also very empathetic to as well. And so you singing is your career for sure. And that's definitely an artistic thing to do, but you're also a writer and you've done all kinds of stuff, um, the rock opera and all that other stuff. Do you feel like in all of those things, you're setting your same intent or is it slightly different somehow because the medium is different? No, I think it's the same intent. I totally think it's the same intent because it's the, it's, you know, one of the things that I, you know, started writing a handful of years ago, I have great confidence in performing and singing, right? That's come through decades, like truly, truly, truly decades, you know, from when I was a kid, experienced logging the hours and kind of knowing what I can do, what I can't do the way you move your body on stage, the way you you know, plant yourself or, you know, whatever. They're just ways that, you know, it's like ways to perform. And But when I started writing, I had none of that confidence. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a quote I've always kind of lived that I've always loved and lived by is like, humility is confidence properly placed. And, and you know, for, I don't even remember where I heard that or where I saw that, but that really stuck with me because I, I think that that's, you know, humility is an honorable trait. But confidence, you know, is also a good trait. But when it came to writing, I had none of that. So I couldn't call myself a writer, you know, like, would I ever be able to call myself a writer? And, you know, because I don't have the proof on the proof behind it. You know, there's not a book on a the shelf. There's not, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and I, you know, I was like, how much time do you have to put into it? And how much do you have to do, you know, to, where you can maybe call yourself that, Right. And then I realized the moniker that I could live with is communicator. I'm a communicator. I know how to communicate. And I, that's what I want to do is communicate. And so even like the, the act of writing to me is the same as it's the only thing other than singing that gives me the same soul spark. You know, the only thing that kind of like I know when I'm writing and a lot of times, especially if it's going well, it's the only thing that gives me that same energy, you know, but the whole intention all along is to communicate. How often do you write? I try to write multiple times a week. I mean, I kind of get in, sometimes it's like, I'm very good about the discipline of writing. I think that's the key to success on that. It's almost like songwriting, right? It's like, okay, if you write 10 songs in 10 years, then gosh, let's hope they're phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> but what if, what if two are good and eight are terrible? The, kind of the law of averages, right? The same thing, you know, with songwriting, with songwriting as it is with writing, I try to do it as much as possible. I want to do it as much as possible. I intend to do it every day. I want to do it every day. I probably don't, maybe like at least like three to five times a week, I think is when I, you know, I like to go to a coffee shop and write there. 
And then sometimes it's frustrating because you sit down to write and you're like, you write a little bit and you're like, okay, uh, now I should look and see what's happening in the New York Times. <laughs> and maybe that would give me an idea to keep going. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you how, if it's different to sit down and get in the writing zone versus to go into the performance zone or the, or the studio zone or whatever it is from a singing perspective. It is because it's all solitary. The writing is completely solitary. So how does that make it different then? Because there's no other, there's no colleagues in the room with you. There's no, you know, people that you're performing with, making the music together or doing the performance or anything like that. You know, it's kind of up to you, right? But I also love that because, because I started my career as an artist, I had the, even though it was in a box, right? That world is, you know, lyrically you're in a box. But I had the ability to communicate what I wanted to communicate. That was kind not that it was taken away from me, but that luxury did not exist for a couple decades after that, you know, being a sideman or musician for hire, whatever. This is that luxury coming back. I can communicate what I want to communicate in a way that I want to communicate it. That's great. I really love that. I'm not dependent on anyone else. You know, I'm not selling anyone else's vision. It's kind of my own voice. That's great. Has that translated into you writing more songs out of curiosity? No, to be honest with you. I mean, I thought my songwriting has kind of gotten less and less over time. And I kind of think, you know, I'm not really interested in writing for other people as far as like a, the practice and discipline and career of being a professional songwriter for different artists. I find that too challenging because there's so many variables that need to be met, right? Mm, you know, yeah. what is happening in radio? What is in the market? What is the market? You know, what seems to be, to me, the greatest artists are the ones who aren't, they're leading the charge. They're not following the, the lead. I, you know, those are the, the, but those artists are few and far between, right? So true. And, and so many writers and producers are trying to just have the next fill in the blank. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, you know, look, they've had success doing it, you know, so I'm not knocking someone's path to their success. I'll never forget there was a, an acquaintance who was staying with us in New York at one point, and he was trying to write a song, started writing a song or whatever. And he was like playing whatever this particular like popular song was on the radio and then trying to copy it. And my friend Jay, who was in, you know, Rascal Flats, like, and, and so I, I was like, oh my God, that's disgusting when he was doing that. So my friend Jay, you know, Rascal Flats, and, you know, they would come at the height of their career, you know, they were playing Madison Square Garden and all this stuff. So, you know, we'd hang out at the Four Seasons and when they were in, and after we'd had, you know, set, essentially closed the bar down at the Four Seasons, then we'd like go up to his room or one of the, you know, guys would come over and we'd just mutilate the mini bar. And, you know, they'd like play like songs that they're, you know, maybe going to looking at, you know, pitches or on their next record. And then I had somebody at the same time in New York. I was like, hey, since you get to know the guys in Rascal Flats, you know, could you would you be willing to like give this in this song to them or whatever? And I'm like, you just wrote their last record, the stuff that they're listening to for their new record. I've heard it. And it's they've moved past that. So you're copying what they've already done and they're looking for something, you know, meanwhile, you know, having to chase radio as well, but yeah, you know, right. but it's just that <laughs> mindset. That's why, you know, I'm not knocking songwriters. Oh my God. It sounds like I'm knocking songwriters. 
I'm not at all. It's just saying that that's not a path for me. To clarify that, I, you know, again, I, just, I don't want to make it sound like people who write songs for a living are chasing a sound or the radio because that is the art of art, right? You still have to make a living and you still have to give the artist, the label, the radio stations, whatever, who's playing the music or get the streams, you know, commercial music is commercial music. You got to, those salmon have to swim in the same direction, even if it is upstream. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about your musings project next a little bit since we're on the subject of writing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah, certainly open to talking about that. Shoot. Tell me about it. Tell me about musings. This is something that I've been trying to do for a while now. I had a friend, I guess, at one point, she was in New York. And at this time, she was visiting from, from the South. Her name is Ruby. And she had a TV show that was on the Style Network and kind of made the Style Network. And she, at one point, weighed like, and I knew her from college, from those days and like the East to West days. And she, at one point, weighed like, I think her highest weight was like 700 pounds, something like that. Whoa. Yeah. So she lost like, uh, you know, 200 pounds or something. She was still like 500 pounds. And she pitched a show with a friend of hers from LA. It was an actress, successful actress on like a Damon Wayans show. I forget the name of the show, but Brittany was her name. And they did like a little pilot to do this like process of her losing weight, her goal to the, she's a person who knows no stranger. Like she, remember like way back in the day in LA when the Tybo phase was remember that exercise craze you know <laughs> billy blanks yeah billy blanks well she worked uh, like our old road manager was one of my old roommates he actually after leaving our band he went to la and he became a trainer at billy blanks and so then ruby moved in with him she's from savannah georgia hope i'm not making this too long a story but she's a fascinating character she worked at billy blanks right so you can imagine tybo craze billy blanks gym you walk in the door and here's a, I mean, her weight fluctuated so much. She might've been 350 at that time. She may have been 450 pound receptionist. Mm. You'd be like, uh, am I in the wrong place? And, you know, but she knows no strangers. She's such a charming person. Like she, Shaquille O'Neal, she seemed to tell me the story. It's what she walked around the corner one day and literally they bumped into each other, <laughs> you know, and she just looked at it. And he's so tall, you know, she looked up, she just looked, she said, I just looked up at him and I said, finally, somebody bigger than me. <laughs> this is like that kind of person, right? Yeah. Oprah had her on and fell in love with her and had her back once or twice in like in a six week period. She was on Rachel's show at one point as a guest on the Today Show, People Magazine, all the stuff. So show was, you know, people related to this struggle of losing weight. Anyway, she lost a lot of weight. The show eventually went off the air. She was in New York and she we were talking about writing and, you know, she said, she just grabbed my arm and, you know, we were at breakfast and she was like, just write three pages a day. I don't care what it is. Just write, write, just sit down and write. And I was like, oh, okay. And I did. I, I kind of like started, I sat down. I was like, I didn't know if I was going to make a grocery list because I had read the artist way before, you know, so <laughs> uh -huh. I didn't know if I was going to make a grocery list or just talk about what, I, you know, today I went and did this today, I did, you know, whatever. And like this kind of like little thought came out and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I don't even remember what it was. I mean, I still have it, but, and then the next day I did the same thing. And the next day I did the same thing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know? And I eventually I kind of read it to my husband. I was like, just 
check this out, you know? And so I'd read it to him and he was like, Hey, that's really cool. And eventually I started like trusted another friend. I'm like, you know, so I would read them. So it got to the point where that's, I started doing that more and more and more and trying to do this practice all the time, like every day. And, and I was like, Oh, it's kind of like a voice, you know, maybe my voice is coming out in a way that I want to express it and skip forward, you know, a handful of years. I went to see my mom she and her husband at the time bought a little condo in this town called New Smyrna Beach in Florida. My dad, the day that I graduated from high school in Louisville, Kentucky, my dad moved to New Smyrna Beach and managed a motel. Okay. Not a hotel, but a motel. A motel. So I was like, mo- hotel, <laughs> motel, holiday, and another, just the motel in New Smyrna Beach. So I remember visiting one time when he was at work, I went driving by myself. You know, I was like, I love to just kind of explore. I realized that later in life, I'm like, oh yeah, I've always kind of had an explorer's heart, right? So like driving around by myself. And what I remember as a dirt road, I turned down this road just to kind of like drive by myself. You know, like I remember in high school, I would put like 30,000 miles on my car a year just because I wanted to just go around and drive. And so I was driving down this road in this little beach town and in the woods, and all of a sudden, I came across this theater. It was like a little amphitheater, but wood, it was like a wood amphitheater, looked fairly new. And I was like, I felt like I was in Alice in Wonderland, you know, like, what is this? You know, but me being a theater kid, only a few years back, I was fascinated. So I got out of my car, I walked around, maybe there was one or two other buildings. And I was like this theater in the woods. And I was like the coolest thing in the world. So I left. Skip forward 30 years later, my mother... My father and my mother divorced when I was 10. My mother, 30 years later with her husband, bought a condo in this town, New Smyrna Beach in Florida. I think at this, at this point, my father had passed. But so we're in this little beach town again after 30 years. And I was like, hey, we should see if this theater in the woods still exists. Because I told them the you know, story and I like started, did a Google search theater in the woods and no results, you know, <laughs> and to get like no results on a Google search these days, like, you know, you must be really barking up the wrong tree. So, uh, you know, kept like typing things or whatever. And then it was like performing, uh, you know, whatever performance, venue, you know, whatever, all this thing. And it was like Atlantic Center for the Arts. And I was like, I think this is it because I showed pictures, but there were all these buildings, really cool architecture. And it was like an artist residency that they had a, an exhibit of like, artists who are in red. So I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. So we got in the car, we go to this place, my mom, my sister and myself. And lady was like, oh, I was just getting ready to close, but come on in. And you can see there's an exhibit of all the master artists, artists in residence who have been historically through, and there was people like Robert Rauschenberg, Andre Lord, like all these great writers and artists who have been like, they do these short residencies there. And they have student, you know, the people come that they choose for their residency to be a part of the residency. And she was like, well, she was like, we have a residency coming up. And she was like, what do you, what, you know, you, you live in New York? I'm like, yeah. And my mom's like, oh yes, he's a great singer. I you mean, know, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, we have a composer doing a thing. And I'm like, no, so, you know, I, I do like, you know, enjoy writing or whatever. And she was like, oh, well, there's an author on this one. You know, if you want to kind of submit. So this was Thursday afternoon. She was like, gave me the literature and and I was like, there's no way in the world. The deadline is Sunday. It's, oh, that's the point. It was Friday afternoon. So I was like, no. I went back to New York. It was Saturday afternoon. I'm like, what the hell? I have nothing to lose. I'll just take a couple of my musings and send those in thinking, you know, there's no way. I didn't really have time to properly prepare for it. This won't happen. 
six weeks later, I get a letter from them saying that I've been accepted <laughs> into their artist in residency for three weeks in July, 2020. And I was beside myself. It was like nothing greater <laughs> could, you know, it's almost like as if it was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Right. And then the pandemic happens, it gets canceled. So I'm like, fuck, you know, and there goes my dream and came back around and they were like, you have to reapply just because you've been applied. So this time a lot more people applied because they waived the hundred dollar fee for being it for whatever. And I was like, there's no way, you know, I lost my shot, my chance. Like, And I reapplied and even a bigger shock was I actually got reaccepted awesome. by the author because the author makes the decision what like- Oh, I see. The artist or author, choreographer, whatever the discipline is, they get to choose the six to eight people that they want in their residency for those three weeks. So is that upcoming or it happened? It happened. Okay, great. So you're done with the residency now. Yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah, and because of COVID still going on, I, I did it remote from Provincetown, but it was a life-changing experience for me. You know, because it wasn't just a friend or my husband or someone validating, but, you know, one of the most effective things that could have been said, and this is why I'm saying this, is he said, you know, most writers, and I'm not giving myself, oh my God, I'm not giving myself any kind of pat on the back when it comes to writing, because I feel like, you know. You're allowed to pat yourself on the back as well. Totally fine. No, I'm not. I'm not patting myself. I know, but you're allowed to. I'm just saying. There's more insecurity <laughs> and I feel like an idiot and a poser, you know, when it comes to writing. But this guy said one thing that really affected me is he said a lot of writers search for years to find their voice, oh. quote unquote voice. He said, the minute I read your material and then when you resubmitted, I was like, there he is. You know, hmm. I knew exactly who you were. I knew exactly who this was because your voice is so clear as a writer. And the musings, I get to kind of do them almost kind of like stream of consciousness. It's really mm -hmm. not stream of consciousness. It starts with an idea and then I try to write it stream of consciousness, edit it, you know, just to kind of like, so that it, there's a purpose sort of hidden in there somewhere. And I try to like to do it a little humorous D if possible. It, where can people find them? Can they find them somewhere online or? No, not yet. I hope someday they will be able to. <laughs> I mean, I hope, you know, my hope is I would love for this to be a book someday, but, you know, I would love for that to be my future. Cool. I think it's so awesome that you had the same experience of finding your your voice or your unique perspective or whatever you want to call it, both in music and in writing. That's pretty cool. Thank you for linking that, actually. That's a, a good link. I mean, it's amazing. I feel like so many people go their whole lives not having something like that or having something like that and not having not being able to share it with other people or not feeling comfortable sharing it with other people. I think one of the things that I think is interesting about music and any kind of art is that you have to be so vulnerable to do it, I think, in a lot of ways. And it's hard, super hard. I think you're totally right. I mean, I think to me, the writing is being a lot more vulnerable simply because you know, the education is not there for me and the decades that preceded it, I didn't have that proof of evidence as I did, you know, like I did as a singer. So, you know, that's where the insecurity comes from. And I don't mean to be some, I don't mean to make that more of a thing because this guy did a lot to put a salve on my insecurity, just in the sense of validating. Who's the writer who 
was doing this. What's his name? Do you know? His name is Randall Silvis. Randall Silvis. Okay. Yeah. He's kind of more known for this like thing on the DeMarco series, which is like more like thriller, you know, like the thrillers that he's written, but he's written like 20 something books and he has a, an amazing discipline of writing and been, you know, I mean, I almost kind of consider him like a mentor, but yeah. So the insecurity piece you feel like has been or at least it's getting better as you're putting the reps in, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Because you can only stay insecure for so long, right? Mm. I think there's the thing where it's kind of like, yeah, that can be charming to an extent. You know, the quote I said earlier, humility is confidence properly placed. I mean, you know, yeah, where you be your like humble self, but if there's nothing behind that, then okay, yawn. You know, and it's like, you're either going to do this, or you're not going to do it, or you're just going to talk about it. And so what if you're not good at something or, you know, not that you're not good at something. So what if you don't know certain things, either learn it or work around it, or you got to drop it at some point, you got to be, you know, so I, I do have confidence in it, but I also, you know, feel like a fraud. I mean, feel like a fraud in that. <laughs> well, you shouldn't, I think, um, I think if your track record shows anything, you're fantastic at uh, the things you set your mind to. So I'm sure this will start to move in the same direction or continue to move in the same direction. I hope so. I love it and I enjoy it. So, yeah. Well, you do have one more question to answer though. This one's very easy, which is where can people find you? I suck on social media.com. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wonder if that actually is, we should look that up and see if that domain is taken. Right? You should. That would be amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome if that were my website? I suck on social media.com. Yeah. You know, I'm doing a search after this. Yeah. Buy the domain. Yeah, exactly. If the domain is out, I'm like totally getting out my credit card, put down my six ninety five. Of course, somebody probably owns that in yeah. India and charging $7,200 for it or 70,000. Yeah. Instagram, you know, I do have an Instagram page. I am not a fan of Facebook. You're at Neil Coomer on Instagram. Yeah. At Neil Coomer. Yeah. That's what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah. And, <laughs> and as things, you know, progress or go on or whatever, then I'll, I will actually give more attention and focus to that, you know, for sure. That's cool. That's about what I know. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Maybe we'll do a part two someday. Yeah. Well, and until then, looking forward to reading what you put out. There. I'm around and you know where to find me. So. <laughs> And I know maybe maybe we do okay. Get the, oh, this okay. Maybe we do a part two in Italy. Oh, definitely. We can absolutely do a what would, what would you call that? A traveling version. But would you be speaking in Italian the whole time? I can if you want me to, but uh, it might make it more difficult for you to answer questions. Actually, you can speak <laughs> Italian to me, and I'll like as an answer, I'll say whatever I want. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, I like that. Be like whatever. I'll make it up in my head that you right. said what you asked me, and then I'll just say something. It'll be a little bit of like a magic show where you're reading my mind somehow. <laughs> exactly. And then both of our right. careers are over. Or over. Yeah. <laughs> but at absolutely. least we'll have good wine and we'll be in Umbria for sure, or maybe New York too. Yeah, I'll be back there one day soon too. Well, thank you, Neil. I really appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you, and uh, talk to you soon. Well, thank you for the invitation, Andy. Great to talk to you. Alrighty. Bye. Bye. A quick note, after we stopped recording the main part of our conversation, Neil and I continued to chat and decided it might be best to record that as well. So please enjoy a few more bonus minutes with Neil Coomer. You never know when you get a song, whether it's in a session, like, you know, like if it's a TV thing or a, um, let's say there's a multi-artist deal or a Saturday Night Live. You see, like, there's so many different things. Kind of go into it, you know, like, okay, am I going to get sheet music? where everything is spelled out, 
and you're singing, you know, so there are certain gigs where you go in and it's like, everything is written out. This is the way it's going to be. This is what we need to record. That usually happens mostly, you know, specifically on like anything that has Broadway related or, you know, a lot of film and even television stuff will sometimes have that element. Or let's say like if you're singing on one of the late night shows, you're singing with Kenny Rogers, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you know, he's no longer with us, but when that is, or, you know, like with a, with, you know, with a different artist, they're just going to send you the song. Very rarely will you get the isolated vocals. Like when we did the Adele thing, one night only thing at Radio City, they actually sent isolated vocals. For t- I mean, first of all, it was like oh. cool as hell because we got to sing Skyfall with her. Wow. It's a male chorus, you know, and there were like, I don't know, you know, maybe 15 of us, something like that. 14, 15, you know, getting to sing Skyfall, you know with her which is so cool <laughs> but they sent isolated vocals so that's like a gem if somebody sends you an isolated vocal or if you're doing like a really hard session for somebody like mark shaman who you know it's you wrote hairspray and some like it hot on broadway right now he's one of the most brilliant prolific writers it's the show smash when he calls i immediately go into panic mode because it's going to be so hard, so complicated, so layered, so, you know, fascinating and great. But it's like my reading skills are kind of like, meh, they're so-so. I mean, they're, you know, they're okay, but they're not great. So it's hard because the music is just difficult to to sight read. and It is, but then it's also because I haven't, like, you know, kept up with, like, being in college, you know, you're reading in choirs, high school, choirs, you know, musical theater, all that kind of stuff then you kind of go away from that and you're not, you don't have the need anymore. So maybe it's like, I don't know if it's the same thing. If you like sign language and then, you know, then all of a sudden you just go for a long time, not needing sign to use sign language. And then you try to go back to using it again. And maybe you're not so sharp, not as great as you once were or whatever. (laughs) So when reading was like a reading session, I actually, there's only one session I remember turning down because they, it was like for six flags or something. And I knew they were going to go fast. They had to really get through all the material and your reading skills need to be really high. And I was like, you know what? I'm not the right guy because I don't want to be freaked out and I don't want to be slowing anybody down. Right. But for the most part, what happens as for what I do, it's like, say like, even like SNL, you get in the room, here's what we're doing. Here's the bit, here's the piece. And Sometimes, you know, you just kind of like throw parts in the musical director will know exactly what he wants or what she wants back in the day. But so that's not usually written out. Sometimes it will be very rarely. But yeah, so usually what you have to do is you have to sit there with a pair of headphones and you have to dissect what's going on in the background. You know, so it's almost like you wind up becoming a little bit attuned to listen. You know, your ear goes to the background part and depends on how that's mixed. You're either in hell, you know, listen to it over. Like a lot of times what we'll do, like a really big friend is like, it was the amazing slow downer. And now I I like this app called Stems. Okay. S-T-E-M-Z. I heard about this from uh, Cindy's drummer. And it isolates, like, say you have a band playing, you can actually like push on the guitar thing just to hear the guitar. It actually somehow pulls the just the guitar, like it mutes everything else or, you know, so vocals like lead vocal and then, you know, background vocals and you can hear everything. And then I have this other app called Tempo that I would actually put something, a song in and slow it down 
like sometimes really, really slow the song down so I can hear if I'm having trouble deciphering what is the alto part there versus the tenor part. You know, it's like you have to get really, really microscopic, but you have to break the thing into a thousand pieces and then exactly. And then in order to have the whole back together. And then what I do is like, I'll usually print out a lyric sheet, like write out a lyric sheet and learn the song as I'm doing, actually typing the lyric Mm. and then, you know, print it out, then make my notes. This almost kind of like hieroglyphics. If I knew the number system, you would think being in Nashville, as long as I was, I would know the number system really well. All those things I intended to go back to, uh, oh, I should go to take a class on this, take a class on that. And then you realize, well, I'm not going to do that. So then it was like, <laughs> I'll just do my system. And, you know, yes, I sometimes will struggle with being able to tell you exactly what the tonic is and what key something is in. But I know what the where the notes are going and my ear knows mm-hmm. because my ear is trained to know, again, the uh, my upbringing. You know, you immediately find the three parts in a song. Mm. you know you get around a piano and you sing it so you also kind of like looking for filling in the holes yeah cool that's the background singing 101 i love it yeah and then when you show up to the gig whatever it is you still have to probably blend in with everybody else somehow too right oh my gosh see listen i mean i'm glad you asked that because that is the to me you know there are sections that you sing in with other people who are colleagues and you know, partially by who those sections are, like you're going to be super, super happy or it's going to be a little bit of a slog. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there's certain people, you know, like you just love singing with them because they as a background singer, you're actually using a different voice. And when I say that, I mean, as a soloist, you know, you're approaching a song completely different, Right. As a back, there's no holds barred, right? As a background singer, a lot of times what you have to do is you kind of have to create this kind of wall, this cushion, this thickness. So you really kind of need to tuck your voice in with the people you're singing with so that you actually sound like a great unit together, right? And there are some people, you know, like the ears aren't attuned to that or they don't know that they should do that. So they kind of sing it with their solo voice not this other voice and you know it doesn't blend really well but things like you know pitch is one is very important and listening to the other singers around you so that you actually sound great together as a unit it's not like you know even though if you want sometimes you're like and then you got to know sometimes when to put point on the sound yeah texture on the sound and the the person putting together let's say there's three singers the person putting together the three singers it sounds like they may not often know more than more than one singer. If they're hiring people that may not, right? Like if you get a call sheet and there's other singers on it who you're like, oh, this might be more challenging than another session that I do with people that I know. Then assumedly that person who's putting the call sheet together, yeah. I guess you would think that they would want the people who sing together the best, right? So how is it that it becomes a mixed bag? Yeah, I I think it it just it depends because it's like somebody's calling their friend or they're they are, oh oh they only know this person or they know you know like a lot of times it's almost like a little bit of an art form you know it's like okay who would make a good section for this oh I see and then the reasons that you get hired for something you know maybe because they need a tenor like somebody who has a more a brighter sound or more youthful sound or somebody who has a thicker kind of more you know really kind of blended saw you know kind of smooth or R&B-ish kind of thing. It's always kind of different and you have to, you know, more if it's more rock 
you have a favorite thing to sing? I think probably pop, rock, sort of stuff that I enjoy singing the most. Just because it's like, it can be vocally rich. It's like, there's a lot of, you know, there's usually a lot of good background parts. And yeah, no, so yeah, there's no, I'm, I think there's a particular artist or song, you know, whatever. But I think a lot of really kind of more modern day pop stuff is maybe a little less interesting to sing to me because it's, you know, so chopped up. And so, you know, it's kind of a different feel and, and approach. But I will tell you this, it was like, because I, I don't know why this popped in my head. The first gig I ever did at the Kennedy Center Honors, mm-hmm. I only got, just this, talking about this, like the need thing, right? I only got because Hootie and the Blowfish were singing, Brian Wilson was being honored. Hootie and the Blowfish were singing like a, a medley of Beach Boy songs. And thank goodness for me, Darius Rucker didn't have falsetto to sing, you know, I get around from town to town, you know, like all those things. And they're like, and so my friend was like, I've got just the guy, Neil Coomer can do it. <laughs> and I was, yeah, I mean, it was like, great. Because it's rare when you have even a background section that there's a featured vocalist moment. Yeah. You know? But for that, there's something so iconic. You got to have that voice that has a lot of point in it. And super fun. I mean, that would be, yeah, that would be awesome to just have the Beach Boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was. But especially because, you know, it was the first time doing the Kennedy Center Honors and you look up and like, oh, okay, there's the president and, uh, <laughs> and there's Diana Ross. And yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. really great. Yeah, it's very cool. So, but you get the call based on, and then a lot of times, sometimes the frustrating thing is sometimes you don't get a call because somebody has a perception or they think, oh, well, he couldn't do that. That's not really his wheelhouse or what he's really good at. And you're like, come on, man. You know, I can do that. <laughs> Just give me a shot. Yeah, I know, I know. Come in, coach. <laughs> but then you also have to look at, and this is a very common thing for all musicians to deal with, that thing where you you know, you see other people who are doing a gig and you're not doing the gig. You know, the insecurity of, well, why didn't I get called for that? Or it should have been nice to do that. Or I could have, you know, did it. Or that would, you know, whatever. You can't get caught up in that kind of bullshit way of thinking. You have to be like, Look, you know, good for them. They got the work. They're working. I'm happy for them. They are my colleagues, you know, and so what? There's this not a scarcity mentality, but you know, you work so hard to be on people's minds, to work, to get the gig, to get your insurance, to have, you know, whether it's union gigs or live gigs or whatever. And, you know, you're really at the mercy of, you know, are you who came to mind? Are you the person who came to mind for the person who's either the contractor or the musical director, the person making the call? And sometimes you're not. Sometimes it's just a simple thing like, oh, wow, you know, yeah, I could have called so-and-so or I could, oh, I didn't even think of, that's the worst thing when somebody tells you like, oh man, I didn't even think of you for that. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I had thought of that. And you're like, huh. <laughs> so is there like one or two things you do to to stay top of mind for people? No, I don't. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I mean, I'm not a, I feel like on one hand, I'm not a good networker. I should go out to clubs more or go out to gigs or do, but you know, and it's not that I intentionally mean that I don't or whatever. In a little bit, a little bit in a way, networking is a young man's game, <laughs> you know, because yeah, you should be, I mean, people should be out there pounding. They should be going to Bitter Inn. They should be going to Rockwood. They should be going to the venues. 
they should be seeing the 10 o'clock show the you know whereas now unfortunately somebody like hey uh, come see my show at rockwood i'm playing it um cool when is it like tuesday night at 10 and you're like oh no that's your problem you booked a show at 10 that's your problem it should have been seven because that's 45 minutes from my house <laughs> and if i get finished with your show like at 11 that means i'm not going to get home let's say hello and goodbye and i'm not going to get home to like 12 30 i'm not no I'm kidding. I'm, I'm being stupid, but you know, yeah, when you're, you should be up like hitting all those, you know, and networking. I'm not the best networker. Why does going to shows help you network? Is it just because you meet the the artist at some point or they, you know them because they invite you or? No, you meet people that are, you know, you're on the scene. People know they see you or, oh, I, you know, we work together at so-and-so. Oh, or, I see. You know, I saw Neil the other night or, you know, and then somebody, if they're doing a session or whatever, they're like, you know, you're that way. You're kind of, mm. you know, you're fresh in people's right. head and mind because they've just, they saw you not too long ago. Whereas if, you know, they haven't seen you in a year and a half and they're doing something and it could be something very significant. Yeah. You know, it's like I had the luxury of, you know, back in the day, like doing 30 Rock and SNL with uh, Jeff Richmond, who that luxury is slash was they saw you frequently. You saw each other mm, frequently. I see. And then when they move on to different projects or, they, you know, that there's maybe not as much music in or not as much singing in or whatever. Yeah. Then you're not top of mind. Now, to me. Am I trying to send an email like every, you know, two months? Hey, just thinking about you, thought I would, you know, no, because I think that's bad form in the long run. Because to me, the back end, it's just my philosophy. I may not make the best first impression at a party, but if there's a potential for a long-term relationship, that's where my strong suit is. Yeah. I mean, I think most people who are focused on relationship building would totally agree with that. Yeah. Like you're way better off being consistent and showing up. I mean, that's what I think, right? Great. I mean, especially as you get older and you realize, I mean, it's like everybody's like, but then at the end of the day, you just want to be in the room with people you want to be in the room with. You want to travel with people you want to travel with or spend time with people that you actually like spending time with, not just because somebody is, because there are plenty of people who could do my job and almost in many different settings, you know, but I like to think there are other things that I bring to the table other than just, you know, the right vocal performance. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think I would go for anything, right? Not just music. Sure. Sure. And I mean, no, nobody wants to be bullshitted. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> if someone's full of shit or they're just trying to move forward and, you know, at any cost, at any rate, I mean, I think that's probably a little bit of my love hate relationship with social media because there's so many times I'm like, oh, I should post this. And I was like, you know, and then I think of like all the pictures and things are on my phone, but no one's ever, you know, why am I, you know, but then the, on one hand, you know, like you don't want to put stuff into people's face who aren't, aren't necessarily working at the moment. But then, you know, you know, it's not my responsibility to make sure that they're okay. Uh, yeah. And then I just like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll do it later. <laughs> <laughs> Time for spreads. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Neil Coomer. Just a reminder, you can find links and notes to all the things we talked about in this episode on the show notes page. Also, you can find Neil on Instagram at Neil Coomer, N-E-A-L-C-O-O-M-E-R. 
And if you enjoyed the podcast, I hope you'll rate and subscribe. Thank you so much. Thanks once again for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. And we'll catch you next time on Music Lessons.